Both here in Luke chapter 4, there after the scripture reading. This morning's text, I don't really have too much of an outline for you, but we'll simply trace through the events, the happenings of this text. It's a very interesting, uh, exciting passage for us, I think, as it hopefully will come to life as we go through it. We're making a bit of a transition here in the Gospel of Luke. So we've taken uh, several weeks now, beginning of Luke chapter 1 up through Luke 4.13, Really, we've looked at the preparation of Jesus Christ for his public ministry. And this morning, we kind of make the jump into now he begins his ministry. If you remember how we have seen Jesus Christ prepared, of course, we saw John the Baptist coming with his uh, message, kind of the last prophet, proclaiming a message of Jesus Christ coming. And following John the Baptist, then Jesus Christ enters onto the scene And we've seen him as a child, and we've seen his understanding of the Scripture, and understanding of the Word, and we begin to realize that his heart is being filled with the Word. He has given himself to the Old Testament Scriptures. We see this come out during his temptation in the passage right before the one we're in, where he quotes Scripture to the devil as he's being tempted. And so we see that preparation for ministry through the Word, and then it leads up to the time of His baptism. And we see this baptism, another means of grace, as He's prepared for ministry. And at this point, the Spirit comes upon Him in a unique way. And so as He launches into His ministry, we see that it's a Spirit-filled, Word-filled ministry. We've spent a few weeks in Luke 4, 1 through 13. There's different themes that arise out of there. We've seen Jesus Christ... As that true and better Adam, as Adam failed in his temptation experience, Jesus Christ did not fail. You see him really as the true and better son, the true Israel, where Israel in their wilderness temptation failed time and time again. Jesus Christ in his wilderness temptation and his wilderness experience obeyed perfectly. And we have seen how that righteousness, that act of obedience all the way to the cross, how important that is, what that earned for our justification, that he was perfectly obedient, not just passively to the cross, but actively on the way. We saw his fight against sin, against true, genuine temptation as he, in his humanness, would fight 40 days of temptation. It comes to a close. And so now as that comes to a close, we're left with the words on chapter 4, verse 13. And the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. And as the devil departs, then Jesus begins his ministry. And this is where we pick up this morning. We see that Luke is very intentional, where he goes quickly through parts of Jesus' life and where he really stops and takes some time. There is a a time, some theologians, uh, commentators call it the Galilean spring, or Galilean springtime, of Jesus immediately after his temptation where he enters into ministry and he has a time of real, uh, where he is well received, where his fame and celebrity is kind of starting to build a little bit and there's excitement wherever he goes. His teaching is so unique, what the people have grown accustomed to hearing to when someone would stand before them and would say, here's this scribe says this and this scribe says this, and now you have Jesus speaking almost like one of those Old Testament prophets or like John the Baptist, thus saith the Lord, empowered by the Spirit, his mind so understanding the Scripture and proclaiming it, his teaching is unique. 
and he's healing, and he's doing, performing miracles. And so there is a celebrity and attention that seems to be starting to follow Jesus Christ as he makes some travels and begins his ministry. And Luke records all of this for us in just two simple verses. In verses 14 and 15 it says, And Jesus returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He was, people were in awe. People were praising him. And so that is all the attention really Luke gives to this, uh, this springtime, this Galilean springtime, this uh, moment of, of success and celebrity in the ministry of Jesus. And so he's made some trips here in the surrounding area of Galilee. It would be fairly near Nazareth, but he has been out uh, a little bit outside of Nazareth. Now he returns to Nazareth. You remember Nazareth is where he was born, and so his fame, his, his reputation has been building. Now he's coming back to his hometown, and there is some serious excitement for the return of Jesus. Uh, the momentum energy is building. I mean, it, you could cut it with a knife, as they say. It, it, people were excited, and so he comes now to the synagogue, and we see, as was Jesus' custom, on the Sabbath day, he joins the people for worship at the synagogue. And that's where we'll find most of our text and our sermon today. There's some really interesting insight into synagogue worship or into worship during that time. I think it's helpful for us as we, we learn a little bit, as we see Jesus roll, why, kind of how the drama would be building for what Jesus is going to do here in the synagogue. So he joins them for worship. A typical worship at the synagogue wouldn't be entirely different than how we worship together. It would begin with singing. They would join together and they would sing songs. Now they would have sung from the Psalter, almost primarily from the part of the Psalter, Psalm 90 to Psalm 106 in that uh, general areas. They would have sung psalms together, often that entire portion they would have sung together. And so the worship builds through the singing, much like we bring our own hearts and, and minds together through rehearsing and singing truths together. And so their singing would have happened, and now it comes time to the pinnacle of their service, and that would be the Scripture, the Word. But you got to understand, I mean, it's very different than how we come. I was just thinking, most people walk in with a Bible. They don't have a physical Bible. They at least have the app on their phone they don't have the app. You can get online and find like a million websites where the Bible is there for you. We have a Bible probably in the chair in front of you if you need it. We got Bibles for sale. I mean, there's Bibles everywhere. This wouldn't have been the case, obviously. People aren't like coming to worship at the synagogue with their own scrolls. Now, each synagogue probably would have had a scroll, a copy of the Torah, but they wouldn't have even had full copies of all of the prophets necessarily. And so there is a lot of anticipation when it comes time for the reading of the Word. All of these scrolls would have been carefully copied in Hebrew. and Almost no one in the congregation would have been able to, to, to read that. And so as they take whoever's reading the Scripture, they would un- take the scroll, and they are translating on the spot from Hebrew into Aramaic, or the common tongue. I took language in seminary, and I can tell you there's no way I could walk up here with my Hebrew Bible with no helps and just start reading it to you in English. Um, I wish I could say I could do that, but I couldn't. 
So when it comes time for the reading of the word, the scroll would have been kept in a very safe place, bound up in some leather with um, some cords tied around it, kept very carefully. And so the singing is ended, and now one of the attendants or someone in the church goes, and they bring the scroll, and they would lay it out. And so they would bring the Torah or the law, and that scroll would be stretched out, and maybe one, maybe more, often up to, to seven readers in one service, some commentators suggest. And they would read a portion of that law to the people. And where they were done, the law scroll would be bound back up, carefully taken and put away. And then they would grab one of the prophets. And that scroll would come out now. So we see Jesus, he uses the prophet Isaiah. And that scroll opened again. And again they would read out of it. And so the drama and the anticipation as this service goes through with the words so magnified and highlighted in the service. And then finally after that last reading, that scroll would be uh, rolled up and put away. And then the teacher would stand or would come. And then he would teach from what had been read. Now this isn't like many churches nowadays where you know, we open up our Bibles, read it, and then we're like, okay, put it away. I'll just, I've got something good to say to you. It has nothing to do with the Bible. There they put the scroll away to protect it. But then the teacher would teach from what had been read. And after a time of teaching, then they would close with some uh, recitations or prayers, songs, what they call the 18 benedictions, as they would go through 18 sets of benedictions, often ending there with the ironic blessing out of Numbers. So this was their service. So now we see Jesus Christ coming, and he is in his hometown. He comes to synagogue. The place had to have been packed out. Everyone is wanting to come and hear what Jesus is saying. They know that he's been teaching in the synagogues. It's interesting that as you look at through Luke and the other Gospels, Jesus doesn't read the Scriptures in any of the other synagogues except in Nazareth. And it's probably because that was reserved for kind of members of that local synagogue. And so since that was Jesus' hometown, since he would have been a member of that local synagogue, he was able to read the Scripture. And so he takes the Scripture. I'm sure it was quiet. He opens up the Scripture, and he begins to read. Verse 17 of Luke chapter 4 says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, tension is rising just because of the moment, because it's Jesus Christ. But uh, I think a few other reasons with the passage that he chose. First, this is an incredibly short portion of Scripture to, to read. I mean, the scrolls were so sacred and getting them out and the work. And you understand with these scrolls, it's not like, you know, where we have chapters and verses. This is... 
you know, they go instead of, what is it, left to right, it's right to left with the Hebrew. There's no spaces, no verse numbers. So, I mean, you're just talking line after line after line. You'd have to really know your Hebrew to be able to find where you want to go. And with this much work and preparation, typically the scripture readings were much more lengthy. And so when Jesus reads just the short two verses and sits down, the, the brevity of it, I think, would have heightened people's attention. Secondly, this would be a text that would have been very familiar for them. Isaiah, prophecies of the suffering servant, and now you come towards the end of Isaiah and this prophecy. And as it speaks there, as it ends in verse 19 of Luke 4, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or that is the year of Jubilee. This would have been important to the people because really their whole life, their whole calendar is set around this principle of six days of work and then the seventh day, the day of Sabbath rest. I mean, their whole life is set up around this principle. Work for six days on the seventh day, festivity and rest around the things of the Lord. And then beyond that, they incorporated what they called the fallow year. And that would be six years of working and cultivating And then on the seventh year, a year of rest. And that wasn't that they ceased from all work entirely, but to give that land a chance to recover, to to kind of ease back from all of the work and enjoy what they have worked for. And so every seven years, every six years and on the seventh, that, that fallow year. Then the year of the Lord or the year of Jubilee, this is what Isaiah now is getting at. And We find this in in Leviticus. I'll read just a couple verses from Leviticus. It's Leviticus 25, verses 10 through 12. It says, And you shall consecrate consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap that what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. And so they have this pattern. Six years on the seventh year is a, is a, a year of, of resting, that fallow year. And now they do seven sets of those years. And so you have 49 years, and then on the 50th is this year of jubilee. Basically, one, it would happen one time in each person's adult life, basically. And during this time now, it would be a time for almost a fresh start, new beginnings. For those people who were indebted and working off that debt on the 50th year, that debt was to be forgiven. For those who were imprisoned due to their indebtedness, they were to be released. Those who had been taken away were were either serving or working somewhere away from their home in order to help pay off this indebtedness. It was to be forgiven so they could return to their home. And so Isaiah is playing on this concept that would have been so familiar with them of of this every 50 years. And that's where some of that language comes from of of good news for the poor and and good news for the oppressed and a proclamation of setting free the captive. And so now they're hearing in Isaiah's prophecy, they're hearing this is the jubilee of all jubilees. (laughs) The year of the Lord, the one that will end all jubilees, where we finally have rest. Rest from our oppressors. When our poverty is finally taken care of, 
we have that land flowing rich with milk and honey and the prosperity and all of that imagery. So that's the second reason why when they hear this text, they're immediately going to be perking up and listening to it. And then finally, the third reason is the way that Jesus quotes it is he leaves out one very important line from the quotation. Listen to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, what what Jesus is reading from here in the scroll. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance of our God. Or Jesus just omits that as he's reading from them, as he's reading from the school for the people. And I anticipate, I think, that they were probably sitting there ready to hear that last line. And here's why it's a big deal. First of all, Jesus is starting to teach us that this unfolding drama of redemption, that this gospel of the kingdom the character of the kingdom, his kingdom ministry, as it says at the end of Luke chapter 4, what he's come to proclaim, the gospel of the kingdom, or the good news of the kingdom of God. That this kingdom is coming and it's unfolding in really a two-part drama, a a two-part way. And that there is coming and there is a promise of rescue and redemption and a proclamation of good news. And that is what Jesus is offering to them. That that is what he's offering right here in their midst. But the second part, the day of vengeance, Isaiah, the prophets, a lot of them as they prophesy this day of the Lord, they see it all as one kind of big event, the rescue and the day of the vengeance, the day of wrath. They don't see really the time and the space that is between the two. And so what the people are expecting and connecting is that the two come together. That is that their day of prosperity comes about through vengeance. They're wanting a social, a political type kingdom, and there are too many people oppressing them, holding them down. So the way they're going to have riches and prosperity is when God brings down wrath on all their enemies. When he brings vengeance and pours it out on anyone who is not of the people of God, anyone who is not of Jewish descent. And so they're listening for this because they're sitting here as a people poor, a people oppressed, a people in, even though they're back in their homeland, still in captivity really as they live under other people's rules and dominion. They're saying, okay, you're going to set us free from oppression. Well, I know it's going to be linked with vengeance, vengeance on our enemies. So that's what they're hearing is they're wanting to hear them together. But Jesus Christ only offers the first part of that, a day of deliverance. And so for these three reasons, and I'm sure more, when Jesus finishes and he sits down, all eyes are glued on him, it says. Well, no, no, when it says he sits down, it's not that he's finished. It's everyone would have been standing for the scripture reading. But then as a kind of a sign of authority, a cultural thing, when it came time for the teaching, the teacher sat down and everyone else stayed standing. So that would be like if you were all standing during the scripture reading and prayer, I get to pull up a chair and sit down. The rest of you stand for the entire service. It would be all right with me. 
So as he sits down, all eyes are upon him. And now let's look at Jesus' sermon. Verse 21, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a sermon. He probably said more. He may have said more. Maybe that's all he said. But that was the main point that he was making. And you realize the claim that Jesus is making. That the king that they've been waiting for, the son of David who will come, the true consolation of Israel that they've been waiting for to bring rescue and deliverance, Christ is saying that day is upon you. He is claiming to be the Messiah. He's not just a prophet. He is the one who is prophesied of. Jesus is making all kinds of claims in that short little word word to the people. He's the hope-for king, the son of David, the liberator, the savior, the world ruler, the one who will bring peace. We'll go on and look at their response in just a moment, but I do want to just pause for a moment and just look at the content of what he's quoting from Isaiah. He says four things. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight for the blind, and setting at liberty those who are oppressed. These are revolutionary words. These are revolutionary claims, but it's not the revolution that the people are looking for and wanting. We know what they want. They want that physical, social, uh, political, economic redemption. That's the revolution they're looking for. But Christ is promising a kingdom that's spiritual in nature here. We will see, we'll look at it in a moment, Christ is not unconcerned with their physical well-being, that is, their poverty, their captivity, their oppression. All through his ministry, Jesus ministers to those, teaches us about ministering to those who are oppressed, to the poor. But here it is primarily a spiritual word. As he preaches, proclaiming good news or the gospel for the poor, The word poor there is a bit unique. It's the same word that that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It has the idea of of desperation, of having great need. But not just in the sense of financially, I don't have much money, but it, it, it has the idea of desperation and the person understanding that there is a desperate need they have. You can be poor and not know it. This is, this is someone who is poor in the sense that they are desperate. They realize that there is a need that they can't meet themselves. And he's proclaiming good news. He's proclaiming the gospel to those who understand just how desperate their need is of a Messiah. We see this is what the people don't understand. It's how desperate their need is of a Messiah. He's proclaiming the good news to the common, to the downtrodden, 
to the disadvantaged, to everyone who realizes their place in life doesn't earn them favor, doesn't earn redemption, but those who recognize their poverty. He is proclaiming liberty to the captive, or literally, more literally, to the prisoner, to those who are in bondage. Proclaiming liberty to those who are bondage in sin, bondage to bitterness, bondage to anger, bondage to immorality. He is proclaiming liberty to those in bondage, sight to the blind, those who are totally lost groping, not able to find their way, totally hopeless and helpless. Liberty for the oppressed. Those living, seeking to live for God in an age that is against God. And before we just move on and and continue to kind of trace what's happening here in, in the story with Jesus and His preaching... Do you realize the character of the gospel of the kingdom being proclaimed? And I hope you take warning and comfort in it. That the gospel of the kingdom is for those who aren't feeling invincible on their own, who aren't feeling that they've got it all together and they're the strong ones who have earned it. It is for those who recognize their desperate need. It is for the poor in spirit. The character of the kingdom isn't all bravado and we're going to overthrow. The character of the kingdom is humility and recognition of need. To those in bondage, liberty to those in bondage. I think of those who are fighting temptation and losing the battle. I especially think of impure, lustful, pornographic battles and fights. I I would be naive. We'd be naive to not think that there's a a decent chunk of folks in this body here who struggle with that on a regular basis. That's the reality. That's the culture we're in. And it feels like, you know, you're sick of confessing that sin over and over and over again. Jesus doesn't want to hear me anymore. I'm giving up on this. Forget it. The promise is liberty to the captives. Not that you won't feel the pull of sin, the strain of sin, temptation, but it doesn't have to have dominion in your life. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The character of the kingdom is one where the rule and dominion of sin is broken. For those who trust in Christ. I encourage you right now. If that's in your life. Any temptation. You know whether for many it's the approval of man. And you set your whole life up to gain men's approval. Whatever it happens to be. The temptation you're in. That you're battling and you're losing. And it feels like this is just my lot. To keep losing it over and over again. Don't give up the fight. Give yourselves to the means that God has given to overcome it. 
That is the Spirit through the Word, through worship, through fellowship with one another, through the table, through gathering together like this. The means of God's grace to defeat and fight sin. The nature, the character of the gospel of the kingdom is one where sin doesn't have dominion and rule in your life. Sight to the blind, those who are hopeless, helpless, those who aren't sure what tomorrow holds, that's all of us. To the oppressed, you know, I encourage you in this to think of those who face that persecution, deadly persecution on a regular basis. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the persecuted church around the world, those facing death, torture. Think of them North Korea, those in, in facing the Middle East, the hands of ISIS, all around the world where it happens. I was just reading the magazine, comes to the church, Voice of the Martyrs, and the, the stories, it feels like it should be the first thing you hear on the news every morning, but it's not necessarily the Christians who are dying for their faith. But then there is oppression that you face. It might be different than that. But in your job, in your school, in your wherever it is, with your unsafe family, that you're just... <laughs> Your faith is weakness. It's kind of cast aside as that is archaic, that is weakness, that we're not taking you seriously. Really, you know, it's 2016, you're still believing that stuff. Living for another kingdom in the midst of a kingdom that is passing away. And you realize that's the character of the kingdom. It's not that all your oppression immediately is done physically and, and politically in that way. But spiritually, he gives you freedom from having to bow to that oppression. The people misunderstand because what they want is vengeance on the enemy. That's going to happen. Christ reserves that in the future. First, he's going to reorient our minds to what the character of the kingdom really is. All right, so back into then our flow of thought. So his sermon, this is the kind of sermon you wish you heard, one sentence long. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You're dismissed. Verse 22, so here's your initial response. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They're impressed with just how good of a teacher he is. I mean, you remember the saying, no good thing comes out of Nazareth, or what good thing comes out of Nazareth? Well, here's their claim to fame, Jesus. He's starting to build some celebrity. Here's something good that's come out of Nazareth. They're impressed with Jesus, but we quickly see that it begins to be mixed with a bit of skepticism, doubt, or at least this observation. Verse 23, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? Maybe skepticism, maybe just wow, I can't believe like, he can get up there and read from the scroll. I mean, he's just a carpenter's son. He's like a handyman. What is it he's saying? And so in their interest and in marveling at what it is Jesus is saying, it's mixed with some skepticism and some doubt. That is, they're not really understanding the claim being made. And so Jesus then responds to their immediate reaction. And he responds with kind of two different 
proverbial words, different, different sayings here. First, he says, I'll keep reading verse 23. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Okay, you've got to understand, in that time, medicine was a pretty haphazard science. <laughs> you know, the, the remedies and the concoctions they put together in medicines were, could, could really be actually more lethal than the sickness itself. And so as they come to the sick person and they offer some kind of wild-sounding medicine or concoction, the saying was, well, physician, heal yourself. In other words, let me watch you drink the medicine, and if it doesn't kill you, then I'll drink it. Or you do your remedy, and if it works out for you, then I'll feel okay about doing it myself. In other words, what they're asking for is, okay, show me some proof. You say you're going to do all these things. Well, let's, let's see you do them. We've heard you've done it other places, but if you really want us to take you seriously, you know, show us that it's true. And they even challenge him, heal thyself. And then he goes on to talk about how a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That's the sense that they look at Jesus and they think, you're from Nazareth. You're just a handyman. You're poor. You live under the same oppression. What are you telling us? You're delivering everybody. And yet, you're living here blind and oppressed and like, okay, heal yourself. Take care of yourself. That, that idea of a, a prophet in his hometown not having much honor. It can work that way with a preacher or whoever it is like you just once you get to know the preacher too well it's hard to listen to him anymore you know my weaknesses you know you you get sick of me telling you how you ought to live whatever it is and you just you know you kind of reach a point where it's I think it's why it's often hard for people to be effective in sharing the gospel with unsafe family members you're just too close to them You grew up in the same house I did. Get off your high horse and kind of have that feel. Often the gospel is most effectively shared through others and you just need to be a faithful source of love and gospel salt and light to them. So Jesus, understanding what they're thinking, the murmurings that are starting to come about, he says, I know this is what's going on in your minds right now. All right? And then he's going to give them two illustrations. There's something about these illustrations that move them from being amazed with a little skepticism to attempting to murder him. (laughs) I mean, that's where it goes. That would be like if I get up here, I use an illustration you don't like, the next thing I know, you're carrying me now, trying to throw me in front of the next bus that's going by. I mean, he has outraged them with this claim. So let's look in verse 25 and following. He says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There's two things in this story that he's communicating First of all, he's making a point to say the person cared for in this story is a poor Gentile woman. He even says there was lots of widows who needed help in Israel, but God sent his prophet to the Gentile. 
He's giving a picture of the character of the kingdom is marked in no way by, by race, by ethnicity, by social standing, by class, by wealth, whatever it is. If you feel because who you are and who your parents are and what race you are that you have an upper hand in the kingdom of God, he is taking you down a peg quickly. And the people know what he's saying and they can't stand it. They hate what he's saying. And then if you have that, you know that story of the widow, as Elijah would go to that widow, she talks about she has just enough, in the midst of this famine, she has just enough oil and flour to make two little cakes or two kind of loaves of bread for her and for her son. And so here's what Elijah says, okay, God will provide for you, so what I want you to do is give me one of the cakes, and then you and your son split the last one. And it's not like he gave her tons of flour and oil to do it. No, she had enough to make two cakes. He said, yeah, use it, only use half of it for me. That was all the words she got. And by faith, she believed and obeyed. And you know the story? Every time she went back to the cupboard, there was always enough oil and enough flour there for her to continue to provide for her and for her son. And Jesus is saying... Two things. One, how dare you put me on the spot that I have to prove myself. You hear the word of God and by faith you believe it and obey. Secondly, I don't care what ethnicity, what class you are. The character of the kingdom is marked by faith. Not by being Jewish. Not by being wealthy. Not by being well educated. Not by having the right ancestry. And the people hear it and they hate it because you remember the kingdom they want is this. They want to be released from oppression and they want vengeance on everybody else. Jesus is saying, I'll pass right over you and I'll save that poor Gentile widow. And I will give her release, and I will give her victory. Then he moves on to his second illustration. Verse 26, or verse 27. It says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. So he gives the story of Elijah, now Elisha. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian so now he's making the same point, but he's just coming at a different angle. You remember that story of Naaman? He's the ruler of the Syrian army. I mean, Israel hates the Syrian army. One of their major rivals have caused all kinds of persecution. Now, he has leprosy, a hideous disease. And you remember Naaman and his search went to the king of Israel and asked if he could have help. And the king of Israel was like, no. Because I'm going to fail and then you're going to kill me. And so even he wouldn't help. And Elisha hears of Naaman's need. And so Elisha then comes, or sorry, Naaman then goes to Elisha for healing from this disease. So he shows up. Elisha doesn't even come out and see Naaman. He just sends one of his workers out and is like, yeah, tell him, dip himself seven times in the nasty river down there and he'll be cleansed. And Naaman is, you know, 
is outraged. I came all the way here. It says that he comes in his chariot with his servants and there's gifts. I mean, he's ready to, he wants some sort of major miracle production. And Elisha doesn't even come out and see him himself. Just sends someone out to tell him to go dip himself in the river. And finally, Naaman isn't going to do it. His servants convince him to do it. So with no proof that it's going to work, no nothing uh, proven to him where he can look at someone else and see something happen, he goes down, he dips on, in the river there seven times, and he is healed. The same two points are made. A Syrian man with leprosy in charge of an army that has oppressed Israel a man with leprosy. God is gracious and sets that one free because by faith he believed and obeyed. That's the character of the kingdom. So then we know what happens after these illustrations. Finish our text here in verse 28. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They're overflowing with rage. This is not what we want. We're not asking for a Messiah who's going to come and heal the Gentiles and and bring release from bondage and, and helping the poor from other countries. We want our problems to be solved and vengeance to be taken on everyone who's causing our problems. Jesus makes it plain. This is not the character of the kingdom. Verse 29, They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So they're kind of in a high place and they're bringing him to throw him off the cliff and kill him. This is how deeply their pride, their self-righteousness was wounded and affected by what Jesus Christ was proclaiming as the good news of the kingdom of God. And then verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. I don't know if something miraculous happened or just as the riot was breaking out, he managed to struggle and get free. Somehow, God's provision, Jesus Christ passes through their midst. He gets away. It's interesting that he never, as far as we know, Luke, none of the other Gospels record that he ever returned to Nazareth after that. He was gone. John 1.11, he came unto his own and his own received him not. So Luke, is, he sets up for us now, we're going to look at for several weeks, months, we'll be looking at the teaching of Jesus Christ in this passage of Luke. It's rich. I trust you'll give yourself to understanding the words of Christ and the teaching to his disciples, to his people. And as he outlines for us, what is the character of the kingdom of God? It's such a good word for us because I think we can start to twist and misshape what really is the character of the kingdom. What matters to the heart of God? And you have... Churches dividing over all kinds of things. You have health and wealth and prosperity, all kinds of false messages coming out. Because we've missed what marks the character of the kingdom, and that is humility, faith, and obedience. We looked at these things are primarily spiritual in their nature. 
But we see that attached with them is also a physical reality of loving and caring for the poor, for the oppressed, for the blind, those who are hurting, for the captive. I would encourage you to never grow kind of this elite type of feeling that as the people of God, you belong in a different class than others. But for the poor, that those in need, that our heart would be moved to care for them individually as a church. I know it can feel like an overwhelming topic, so you don't do anything, but there's little things, even like our benevolence fund, where you can, as God blesses you, give something where we're able to reach out and to be a blessing to people in a time of need. For the oppressed, for those who have it incredibly difficult in their lives. I was just out yesterday at the Living in Liberty ministry, if you remember them, that ministry that's helping girls try to break free of, of prostitution and sex trafficking and some of that stuff. And you think, again, such an overwhelming thing, but how are small ways we can start to be involved? Number one, you can learn about it and pray. The Lord uses those prayers as means of accomplishing His goodwill. I think of fostering, adoption, some of those things we've tried to highlight. How can we surround those in our church who are fostering? I think of the Beakleys with their work. How do you surround them and care for them and love for them? How the Lord might be moving you? Our little orphan care ministry. Just learning more about what is taking place in our neighborhood, in our city. We try to highlight compassion, a ministry that maybe is not for everyone. There's other ministries out there, but a way of, of, of giving from your abundance to help someone who's in poverty. Always remembering the main need is the proclamation of good news. What they need is the gospel. God doesn't promise all the poor that they'll have lots of money. He promises them good news. And if your words and your message isn't matched somewhat by radical kingdom living that actually then puts deeds to your words and cares for them, you'll have converts who look exactly like the world. So I encourage you as we move now into the teaching ministry, we look at the kingdom ministry of Jesus. We look at the character of the kingdom. It is marked by faith, by humility, by obedience. And it is for everyone who will believe. Let's have a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text from Luke chapter 4. Lord, I pray that in our lives, we wouldn't be those people who love the message of Jesus as long as it's good for us, but as soon as there's a challenge to our pride, as soon as there's a challenge to get outside of our comfort zone and to to care for others and invest in others where there's no guarantee of of a good return for us, then we start ignoring or even despising the message of Jesus. Lord,